Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. church. I'm Katie. My pronouns are she, her. I'm the lead evangelist at Galileo Church. And if you're like me, it is thrilling to hear so many different voices um, helping us through our worship on nights like tonight. There are many more people whose voices you don't hear who are laboring all along the back in there and people have been here since like three o'clock this afternoon making sure everything's ready to go for this beauty that we do together. If you have any inkling of being any part of any of that, we would love to know about it. And that blue card that's sort of sticking out of those plexiglass frames on the tables, um, that's a, that will get you to a Google form that'll let you sign up to be a, a worship helper in a lot of different ways. Um, that same thing is available to Inside Outers, and um, I'll make sure that that link gets posted in your chat a little later on tonight. Um, I didn't give anybody a heads up about that. Sorry. Um, we are on the last Sunday of our worship series that um, we, we cheated a little bit. I mean, we took Advent and Christmas and then the first part of Epiphany and kind of smooshed them all together in one series because it's hard to start something new right in the middle of the holidays and at the turn of the year. And uh, besides, there's a lot of this nativity story that can't really be read until the birth has happened on Christmas Day. And then we need a couple weeks to just like tidy up some loose ends, you know? So that's what we're doing tonight. We're reading the last part of Matthew's nativity story from Matthew chapter 2. And it's a continuation directly of our reading from last week. Remember when those strangers from East Asia made their way to Bethlehem, uh, probably on a course that took them a couple years of travel. And in our story last week, we heard how they inadvertently alerted King Herod that there was a new future king that he took as a threat to his dynasty, a new king born outside of the palace walls. And in our reading from last week, Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, Matthew reports that when King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. So in this next part of chapter 2, the Magi are on their way home. Uh, They don't go back by the palace as they had agreed with Herod they would do. They went instead home by another way. And we'll pick up the reading in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 2. Now after they, the Magi, had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for this child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet in Hosea chapter 11, if you're checking. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he was infuriated and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or younger according to the time that he had learned from the Magi 
Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, if you're checking. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When that Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Herod Archelaus, that's Herod Jr., was ruling over Judea in place of his father, the first Herod. He was afraid to go there. And after being warned in another dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. And there he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled and for this one, we have no extant reference in the Hebrew Bible. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be consoled because they are no more. Two German words and one English that you want to know for certain things I'm going to say to make any sense. First German word, Realpolitik, means doing politics based on practical rather than ideological considerations. Realpolitik, doing what works instead of what's right. Two, Kristallnacht, the night of November 9th, 1938, when Joseph Goebbels ordered police forces all over Germany to attack Jewish homes, businesses, schools, synagogues, cemeteries, and people. The night of broken glass, Kristallnacht. And one in English, putrefaction, rot, Decay, gangrene, decomposition. Regarding Herod, the babes of Bethlehem, and this post-Christmas story from Matthew 2, partly what all of this means is that Jesus was born a little earlier than we thought. The death of Herod the Great was well documented, partly because when your last name is the Great, people have to pay attention. And partly because he succumbed to a not-so-great putrefying illness that was so excruciating that he tried to end his own life. He was, it was, too awful not to write about. But timelines from 2,000 years ago are tricky because 
Well, they didn't yet use the CE, Common Era, and BCE, Before Common Era system of numbering the years, with Jesus' birth at the hinge of what we supposed was the zero year, the reset of time for everybody everywhere. The modern consensus of historians has been that Herod the Great probably died in 1 BCE, or maybe as early as 4 BCE, at which time, Jesus should have been a preschooler, according to Matthew's timeline, which we calculate by Herod's sadistic order to eradicate all Bethlehem babies two years old or younger, which he calculated by the Magi's transit time from the season the stars called them to Judea from their faraway home in the east. And then we add the time that Joseph and Mary spent as refugees in Egypt, hiding their endangered son, until Joseph received an angelic obituary for Herod the Great, one that politely omitted the putrefaction. Their little boy would have been three or four years old by then, yeah? Not a baby, but little enough that when they relocated to Nazareth, he would grow up thinking of Nazareth as his hometown. And everyone would know him as Jesus of Nazareth rather than a migrant from elsewhere. Like dreamers in this country, brought across the border as little children who know no other home. Jesus was like that. Jesus was like them, like the dreamers. And now we know that he was probably born a good several years earlier than we used to imagine. And what difference does any of this math make? Not that much except that it helps us delay our dive into the deep water of Herod's cruelty and Mother Rachel's lament. Because in any year, in any era, any place in the world, a confrontation with the kind of depraved violence that results in children's blood pooling and parents' howls rising takes something from us some little piece of peace that we cannot get back. You see what I mean? I couldn't just start there. Last Sunday, we talked about the Magi, the astronomer, astrologer, science scholars whose curiosity brought them on a long journey to kneel before little Jesus. We talked about curiosity as a virtue among our biblical ancestors, curiosity as the disposition that has a chance to detect when God is on the scene doing something new and unexpected, something mysterious and beautiful. But embedded in last week's story was the opposite of the virtue of curiosity as well. That is the vice of fear. Verse 3 of chapter 2, when King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And what is the this that King Herod was so afraid of? Only this, that whatever God was doing next would have personal and political consequences for him and his dynasty, that a king born outside of his descendancy would take from him what he clung to with all his might. 
I had Herod on the brain last week while I watched the fight for Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives play out. Right? We saw now finally Speaker McCarthy making concession after concession to politicians whose only governance goal is chaos until the office he so craved has been rendered weaker than coffee made with yesterday's grounds. Herod had done something just like that, sold his soul to the Roman Empire to get a title and a palace and not much else. Meaning, as a vassal king, Herod had more position than power. People had to call him the great, if he said so, but on some level, everybody knew it was a game they were playing, a game where the empire always won, and some people got chewed up and spit out while others were lucky enough to enjoy the ride. Herod was one of the lucky ones, and more than anything else, he wanted to keep it that way. So... When those magi showed up saying they had seen a sign in the stars that something mystical and beautiful and altogether outside of Rome's calculations was happening, indeed, the power from on high was somehow being channeled into a brand new king for this very territory. Herod was terrified. His own rise to power, such as it was, had not received any such blessing from the universe. In fact, he had bowed quite low to get what he had. How hugely unfair for him to lose it now to some stupid random star baby. It seems notable, too, that Herod was not alone in his fear of this cosmic revelation. Matthew says that all Jerusalem was afraid, too. And to me, that sounds like when we say all of Washington, D.C. is on pins and needles as it waits for the speaker election to resolve. We don't literally mean that every fast food worker and school teacher and mental health uh, provider within the city limits is glued to C-SPAN. They're working. We use the city name, Washington, D.C., as a way to stand in for the governing class. So all Jerusalem being afraid, along with Herod, might mean something like all of the religio-political elites or everybody who felt like they understood the realpolitik of Judea's status as a vassal of Rome and Herod's role as the emperor's approved puppet. Everybody, in other words who felt like they had something to lose if the Herod train they had hitched a ride on were somehow derailed by a new, heavenly-approved king. Here's the thing. The Magi's visit and vision tapped in to this primal fear that Herod and all the pretty people of Jerusalem shared. They had no room for curiosity because they did not want to know what God might be up to next. What they wanted was for the source of anything new, anything different, to be eradicated, erased from the face of their little part of the world so they could keep enjoying more of the same. And if their fear stoked unimaginable violence against their neighbors and constituents, so be it. Because... And this is the kicker. Whenever God does something new, everybody knows that God does it in people. People are God's going concern. People 
are God's masterpiece. If God came to G-Craft on Friday nights, God would show up with crochet hooks and rainbows of the finest cashmere yarn and turn out DNA spirals for the most beautiful new human beings you'd ever seen. Ooh, look at this one. God would crow with delight. And there in the little Zoom box would be somebody brand new, a lovely specimen of humanity we had not seen before. Israel had always known it, that when God's rescue came, it would be in the form of a human being, someone brand new, someone knit together in God's imagination for this exact purpose. They called this long-for person the Messiah, a descendant of David born in David's town, Bethlehem, they said. A refugee liberated from Egypt, just like Moses, they said. A resident of backwater Nazareth, far from the seat of Jerusalem power, they said. And whoever he would be, he would be a real human being, not an idea or an abstraction or a symbol of liberation, but a person whose life from beginning to end would demonstrate God's presence and power for the sake of God's people. Even Herod knew that. So when his librarians reminded him of that Bethlehem prophecy, he figured he could contain the threat by, by eliminating the persons who might embody it. If his goon squad found and eliminated every baby born within the Magi's time frame, that should do it. God's own plan would be erased along with those little lives. Some 2,027, 8, 9 years have passed since that horrifying Bethlehem crystal knocked. But the narrative has a horrifically contemporary resonance. People whose power rests in unearned privilege, whose compromises to keep it have made them weak, are afraid of any new idea of what it might mean to be human. And fear wants to eliminate its object. So it seeks erasure by any means necessary. If library books depict a way of being human or being a family that undermines the cishet patriarchy, ban the books. If pride celebrations call into question the established order of shame and secrecy, deny the permits. If doctors of pediatric medicine and psychiatry prescribe support for gender transition, write laws to override their professional judgment. If textbooks tell the truth about generational wealth building on the backs of enslaved laborers on stolen land, edit it out. Erase, eliminate, edit, eradicate. Whatever you fear, whatever threatens your sense of self and strength, make it go away, even if your fear is unto violence. Here is what Herod did not understand, though, that we do. God's purposes, God's plan for this world God still loves will not be thwarted by fear, even fear unto violence. There is no erasing God's salvation. 
By the time your stormtroopers are sweeping Bethlehem for babies, the only one you're looking for has already disappeared across the border. By the time your book bands clear the shelves, kids already know they're queer. You can't erase what God has ordained. Beloveds, the 88th Texas legislature convenes on Tuesday. Galileo Church is sending representatives to Austin later this month to find out exactly what that might mean for our missional priority to do justice for LGBTQ plus people. We suspect it will not be good. Please pray for Cynthia, Tracy, Ashley, and Audrey that their time will yield the information we need to stand up to the fear, the absolutely ancient, completely contemporary fear that can infect people in power. It is putrefying, that fear, producing such moral and spiritual decay that they will do anything to eliminate perceived threats to the status quo. I will not preach to the Rachels tonight or to the Josephs, to the parents whose own kids are in danger of erasure. Matthew says our ancestor Rachel was inconsolable and even stolid Joseph was afraid when he heard that Herod the Great's not so great son Archelaus had inherited the Judean throne. This story is not meant for us to judge the desperation of parents whose deepest instinct is to protect their children and who endlessly mourn the reality that we cannot always do that. But I will say to myself and everybody else that we cannot let any more stories like this one be written. No more histories of eradication no more politics of erasure, no more governance by the fearful, no more violence against persons that God's own self has dreamed up, no more denial of God's own idea of beauty. We must surround the Rachels and the Josephs with love and community and the power that comes from not being afraid, with the virtues of curiosity and gratitude with the sure knowledge that when God does something new and amazing, mysterious, and beautiful, it's always disruptive and dangerous to some, but not to us. We are not afraid. We are not afraid. That's what Christmas means. God is with us. So we are not afraid. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves.
To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.